Hello, and welcome to this ELO podcast. In this episode, you will hear Ray Pennings, co-founder of Cardis, give a presentation entitled Private Business, Public Faith. This presentation occurred at the ELO Forum in Vancouver on November 14th, 2019. Maybe when you um, saw the title for this, Private Business, Public Faith, it may have been that you thought I maybe got the order mixed up. After all, isn't our business about engaging with the public and isn't our faith something that's very personal to ourselves? In fact, there is an element in which even in business itself, we're somewhat schizophrenic about where faith fits in. On the one hand, if you read the latest in the human resource literature, it's about bringing the whole person to work, and we have to bring their passions, and we have to, we have to engage the whole person, and certainly the spiritual dimension is part of that. However, we go across the, uh, out of the boardroom and to the other side, to the PR department, and talk about faith in public usually isn't the first piece of advice that you're going to get. Somehow, in a multicultural, diverse society, the notion of wearing your faith on the sleeve and being overt about it is not necessarily seen as prudent advice. When it comes to the issue of faith in our society, most people think immediately of a graph something like this. Church attendance certainly has been on a steady decline over the last number of years. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you a slide later on. We were in the field last week in our partnership with the Angus Reid Institute at Cardis. We do regular polling on faith and faith attitudes. And uh, the number that attend at least monthly in Canada is 16%. Weekly is 11%. The vast majority of Canadians do not regularly attend places of worship. And the narrative of secularism, the narrative that faith is on the decline and there's a lot less of it in society today than there used to be, is something that's pretty widespread. I mentioned mentioned the poll last, as I said, this is is a poll that's not yet published. Um, It was taken the week, I guess two weeks ago now we were in the field. 2% of Canadians say they uh, participate in a religious, communal religious activity. 2% are um, twice a week. Uh, 9% once a week or so, once or twice a month, 5%. The key is rarely 29%, never 38%. The notion that we live in a society in which people are even familiar with the practices of faith, or even have a vocabulary that knows how to deal with the transcendent, increasingly in our society is rare. There is a growing segment of society in the public that really... What we're talking about here in terms of prayer and fasting and all the rest, it sounds like gobbledygook to them. They really don't know what to hap- what's happening. Now, of course, we're not the first society to experience that. We remember from our history classes that Voltaire and the various philosophers around the time of the Enlightenment were saying that religion is on the decline. The notion that as we become more and more educated, religion will become less and less has been a predominant narrative over the last couple of hundred years of Western history and certainly in our own society as well. It's interesting that various prophets of different generations 
has spoken with great boldness about the fact how religion is inevitably on the way out. And a superficial view of society and the context in which you do business every day would at the face of it seem to say they may have a point. My argument to you this afternoon is that that's not quite an accurate read either of the society that we live in today, and it's certainly not the accurate read in terms of what we should aspire to as we do business in public life. But to do that, we need to understand our terms. So what exactly are we talking about when we talk about religion? This is from a 2017 textbook. If you take religious studies in university, um, there are various competing definitions of religion. I've used Christian Smith's from the University of Notre Dame. We won't, I'm sure he provides a couple of lectures on this. I will take 30 seconds. But I think it is very important for us to understand because while our faith is personal, religion is never just personal and private, even in terms of its formal definitions. There is a sense of, as you see in point number A there, there's a complex of cultural prescribed practices. I can't make up my own religion. Religion is a communal thing that has a certain set, whether, you know, if you're Muslim, if you're Buddhist, if you're Sikh, if you're Christian, there are a set of practices that are associated with a particular religion that are communal. They're they're based, secondly, and as you see on point number two, on certain presuppositions or premises about the existence and nature of superhuman powers. Religion is different than philosophy. There is a sense of the transcendent that's inherent in religion. Now, all of that's very difficult to see, but what happens, as you see in, in terms of the outcomes box there, it results in behaviors, human goods, avoiding bads, blessings obtained, deliverances from crisis. It results in tangible things that we can see, look, observe, and measure. And certainly there's a historic continuum over that. Three years ago, Cardis, in partnership with the Angus Reid Institute, recognized the fact that there was a dearth of data in understanding how faith and faith institutions were operating in Canadian society. And so we developed, based on some literature, but we created our own continuum or index, if you will, of religiosity in Canada. Prior to going into the field the first time, we said, we're going to ask about seven things. And if you do six or seven of those things, we're going to call you very religious. If you do zero or one of those things, we're going to call you irreligious. And we created two categories in between. The seven things, the seven questions that we asked, do you believe that God exists? And every poll that we've done over the last three years, these seven questions are in, which is how we, we, we create our categories. As you see, 67% of Canadians say, no, say yes. Do you believe in life after death? 58%. Do you pray? 70%. I always wonder, and it consistently <laughs> happens. I think, I think we've done 11 of these polls now in, uh, in three years, and the number who pray is always greater than the number who believe God exists. And I have never, I've never quite figured that one out. Do you attend religious services? 16% if you do monthly. Do you experience God's presence? 29%. Do you read a sacred text? 14%. Do you teach your children about the faith? 58%. So, if you do six or seven of those things, 
we call you very religious, zero or one, so we have a continuum. It's interesting, I'll show you in a moment the, the graph the, where we are today. When we began this, the first three times within the margin of error, we came out with a perfect bell curve, 20, 30, 30, 20, in terms of the four categories. I'm going to show you that's been shifting over the last year. When it comes to how do you describe yourself, when you ask the question, um, that question, 67% of Canadians will say they are a believer, where 17% will say that they have no faith feelings at all. As I mentioned, the four mindsets, this is uh, from two weeks ago, then we're at 19% um, non-believers, 41% spiritually uncertain, 23% privately faithful, 17% religiously committed. And that's just the count of those seven items that I showed you earlier and our categories for them. So, whereas it was a 50-50 over the last few years, it's moved to where there's sort of, if you draw the line in the middle, there's sort of 60% on the non-believing side, non-practicing side, 40% on the faith side in Canada. But the one thing that is clear is that that overall narrative that faith is on the way down and disappearing is not accurate. There is a very alive faith presence in society as well. And that doesn't just affect people's personal behaviors in terms of prayer and reading the Bible. It affects their public life as well. And Canadians think it should. We ask the question, should religious and faith committees ha have influence in public life in Canada? Again, you see we're roughly 40% pro, 60% against. And those, those sort of numbers keep coming, coming to, to light when you do the various um, polls of Canadians. However, when we ask Canadians the sorts of questions that I suspect when you're doing job interviews you might ask and think about and try to get at, things like family life, honesty, concern for others, things that most Canadians, I presume, would say are pretty positive things, it is clear that the more you are on the religious side of the spectrum, the greater those values are held and exercised in various ways. As a matter of fact, in terms of involvement in their community, 83% of the religiously committed report some or heavy involvement in their community. In a total separate study in 2010, I did an analysis of the CRA's data on charitable giving. So it was about, at that time, I believe, I'm going from memory here, about $10.4 billion uh, claimed on the uh, uh, charitable receipts claimed by Canadians on their tax forms. We did an analysis of Stats Canada, using Stats Canada um, data. It turns out that 80, um, that, sorry, 29% of Canadians had contributed 83% of that. And of that 29% of Canadians, 23, so 23 out of 29, or roughly 80% of them, participate in the community of faith. The heavy lifting in terms of the charitable giving in Canada is disproportionately carried by the faith community. Now, of course, someone says, oh, wait a minute, that's because there are 85,000 charities in Canada, and half of them are churches, mosques, religious charities. So, anticipating that objection, we factored them all out and said, what about the secular charities? And while the numbers were nowhere near as stark, it turns out that the 
religiously committed people still were the largest group giving to secular charities. And presumably they were about 98% of giving to the religious charities as well. So there is a very clear impact of faith in terms of actual behavior and the participation in public life. In terms of, as you see, we, we ask some questions. Of course, when you ask people on a poll about giving, it's a little less reliable than actually going to Stats Canada and looking at what they actually gave. Um, receipts have a way of not necessarily matching entirely what people tell you. Um, but it is pretty clear that there is a significant attitude towards the obligation of giving that correlates with religion. And certainly when we looked at numbers that were claimed and reported in terms of giving, the factor was more than one of three. It was interesting, last year, every year we focused on a different area. Last year we focused on immigration. We asked Canadians in terms of um, a, variety, a variety of questions, but we oversampled those who were born outside of the country. In terms of those who had been sponsored along the way by government, you see the use of food banks compared to those who were privately sponsored. And keep in mind, the vast majority of private sponsorship of refugees in Canada are churches and faith, or are faith groups. So there's a very significant public impact, even in terms of, of, of the public purse on that. This is a question I found most interesting. We asked all... Im so this is... a poll of uh, two and a half thousand people. We asked people who were born outside of the country, have you received help in terms of finding a job, a place to live, or language training? Very specific, tangible things. Turns out 49% of people born outside of Canada have received help from a faith community in terms of their integration into Canada. Canada brings in 350,000 immigrants and, and plus our refugees per year. Somewhere around 400,000 people come into this country every year. Could you imagine if the faith community suddenly disappeared from the scene? In terms of what the impact would be? Now, you can add to that. I can you know, go to any city here and take a look at most of mission services and the Salvation and Army and all those who are dealing with the marginalized the homeless in the various communities. A very significant impact that there would be. Curtis has engaged in, and if you have your smartphone sometimes, you may want to look up haloproject.ca. What we have done is we have replicated a University of Pennsylvania study that shows the replacement cost for the goods and services that faith communities provide in countries. So basically the, the, the exercise is if... If your, every faith mosque synagogue in your community closed, what would it cost the tax and the, the goods and services provided had to be picked up by government? What would it cost? Turns out it's $4.77 for every charitable dollar that's claimed on the CRA form. You can hop on that website, type in your own town, and it will access CRA's data. It will tell you exactly how many faith institutions there are, what their combined budget is, multiply that four seventy-seven. And we've been going to Canadian Federation of Municipalities and various town councillors along the way because increasingly we're having at council meetings as they're looking for new revenues is let's tax the churches. 
Well, now you have on your smartphone an instant way of saying, if we did that in our community, the cost to the taxpayer is going to be, and you can get that within about 30 seconds on your phone. So why is it? If these are the numbers, if yes, Canadians are increasingly secular, but we, we are becoming, um, there's still a very active engagement of religion in the, public, in, in the front lines. Why is it then that we have sort of these problems that we have in terms of the, the brand of faith, if you will, in the public square? I want to suggest there are two reasons, or more than that, but for the purposes of what we'll talk about. Amnesia and antagonism. And I would say that those of us who identify as part of the faith community need to take some ownership of the problem. We ask the question, how do you describe the role of faith communities in hospitals, homes for the elderly, special needs programs, health clinics? It was interesting, I was invited a couple of years ago by Moses Zneimer to give a talk, and I used a, a version of what I'm doing here. We're just down the street from, you know, St. Michael's Hospital and, you know, the Jewish hospitals in Toronto. And I, so I quickly looked up about the amount of charitable giving that was relevant in each of those hospitals to provide the MRI machines and everything else. It was part of the healthcare system. And it was billions of dollars. And yet, most people don't have any recognition of the role of faith communities in the delivery of our healthcare system. They think that when they go to St. Joseph's Hospital, that's a quaint name, named after Joseph somebody or other who might have lived somewhere. However, I want it, when you take a look at that, so there's by and large a positive impact or impression, but what's missing is the fact that not aware of any past role. Most Canadians, we have not been effective as faith communities in telling our stories. We've been busy doing, but we have not been busy telling the what we are doing and the why we are doing it. And so amnesia, forgetfulness, not sharing that is part of the story. But I want to suggest to you there's a second part of the story, and that's antagonism. And to help make that point, I want to go with you to McGill University and to Charles Taylor. You may recognize that name. Charles Taylor is a McGill philosopher. He wrote a book in 2008 called A Secular Age. It's about 1,000 pages, and it's fairly dense. Um, I'm not going to try to use his words because they don't work well in an audience like this. So this is my version of Taylor's thesis. Taylor says it's very important to understand the very word secularism and how it's changed over the years. The origins of the word secular, going back in, in, in the history of the English language and back to, to its origins, the origins were a description of geography. What do I mean by that? It, I mean that we used to say a secular vocation was different than a sacred vocation. The priest had a sacred vocation. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker had a secular vocation. One lived in the city, one lived in the country. It's a description of geography. Nothing's right or wrong. Nothing's better or worse about either. It's a neutral description of intellectual space. Since the Enlightenment... And in Western society, secular has changed and it has become to mean neutral. 
What do we mean by that? Well, it meant that after the wars of religions with the Catholics and the Protestants were busy fighting each other, the notion came that government no longer was going to take one side or the other. It was going to put on the referee's shirt. It no longer had a red shirt or a, or a, a blue shirt. It had referee stripes. And it was there to make sure that the public square was fairly played. And that has been the predominant understanding of secularism until very recently. And what we are having now is emerging, Taylor says, for the first time in human history, an attempt in which the referee has taken off the jacket and actually the stripes has now put on a team color of itself. Uh, secularism is now its own proselytizing philosophy. It is its own religion. And it's as aggressive and it's as proselytizing and it's as dogmatic as any religion we've had. Now, we can spend a lot of time on that. Let me just highlight a decision. I'm here in the Fraser Valley. Many of you know the Trinity Western decision at the Supreme Court uh, of Canada. So Trinity Western wants a law school, meets every other standard, but because it has a community covenant which respects traditional marriages between a man and a woman, the Law Society says we're not going, that itself is bigotry, we're not going to accept your graduates. Makes its way after many years all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and Trinity Western loses. What I find significant is in that decision, Justice McLaughlin, who at that time was the uh, Chief Justice, even though she ruled against Trinity Western, highlighted and said, I cannot agree that the impact of the decision on freedom of religion of members of the TWU community is of minor significance. Why is that significant? Because in the majority decision from which she was agreeing but felt compelled to write her own dissent, the justices of the Supreme Court said exactly that. Violating freedom of religion is of minor significance. Faith doesn't really matter. Yes, it it inconveniences you, but you have your private views, and that's your personal thing. It's not of public interest. In various media interviews, I continually said, it's like trying to tell the Jew, a Jewish person that there's only a little bit of bacon in the soup. So you shouldn't be offended. It's misunderstanding the very essence of what freedom of religion is about. However, I don't think we have to be all negative in terms of where we're at. Certainly in terms of worldwide population growth, the reality that Augustine said is that our hearts are restless till we find our, our rest in you, reflecting what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans in terms of the yearning of the human heart after God, is certainly there. When we take a look at even projections of world population growth, religion isn't going away. Uh, the religious populations in the world continue to increase. In Canada itself, it's interesting. When you ask people to self-identify, we still have 67% who say they are Christian. The next largest group is um, those who say they have no religion at 24. And you take a look at the next largest groups, the Muslims, 3.2, one and a half, one. The rest of the groups are relatively small in terms of their overall percentage of the population. But what I find very interesting is how faith is regarded. 2017, we asked this question for the first time, and we asked it again two weeks ago. 
Does the overall presence of these groups in public life damage or benefit Canadian society? Now keep in mind that by definition, anybody answering this question will only identify with one of these groups. Seven of, no matter who you are, you're one of them, and seven of them are groups that you are not. So you're asked, essentially being asked about your view of others. Are they being helpful or not? What I find troubling, so you can take a look in terms of Catholics, Protestants are, um, are, are basically um, benefit. Evangelicals, as you see, two years ago, they were actually net positive. They're now significantly negative. They're seen as damaging to society. Um, Jewish is positive. Um, Islam is negative. Hindu, positive, and Sikh and atheism within the margins of error, roughly neutral uh, along the way. However, if you take a look at the far right cult, the change from 2017, you'll see that religion as a whole, and particularly Catholicism and evangelical Christianity in the last couple of years have taken a very marked negative role in terms of their brand in Canadian public life. When we dig a little deeper and say, okay, where does this come from? If we take a look at our four categories of belief, so if you go to the far right side of the stream, the religiously committed, what you see is they are, like everyone else, negative on Islam, but way less negative than the other groups, and they're negative on atheists. But for the rest, if you are a person of faith, you tend to be positive about the contribution of all people of faith, regardless of whether or not you agree with them or not. As you move from right to left on this, on this uh, graph, we are moving from being more religious to less religious in terms of our seven practices we described. And that 20-some-odd percent that is non-religious, and this was true two years ago as well as now, is negative about everyone else except themselves. They do not see anyone, any religious group, as being of benefit to society. All of them, by definition, are damaging to society. I suggest what we're seeing is Taylor Secular 3 definition at work in our society with remarkable... This is the movement here in public opinion is quite remarkable for just two years. So, what do we do with this? You're a group of Christian entrepreneurs doing business in this sort of a society. What message do I have to leave to you in terms of making sense of this, in terms of tomorrow in the workplace? Well, first of all, recognize the fact that we are no longer, while we historically are a society with a Judeo-Christian heritage, that is no longer our present reality. We are a post-Christian society. We are pluralistic in terms of makeup. And the assumptions that many people made about the role of faith in society are no longer accurate. Now, that poses, I suggest to you, a significant challenge that we as citizens together are going to have to face in the next number of years. Because what we have is a society that's based on a certain framework. Witness our healthcare system. Witness our refugee and immigrant settlement system. Witness our social services delivery system. Systems that rely on the participation of faith groups 
and people of faith to deliver the sort of life that most of us think is a flourishing society, that's under threat. I, when I do media on this, I usually use an environmental analysis. I've never been to Brazil. I've never seen the rainforest. But I understand that if we chop the rainforest down, the air that I breathe is going to be different. You may never have stepped inside of a church, mosque, gurdwara, or synagogue. But rest assured, if all of them disappeared from your community, the social air, the social fabric within which we live will be a very different society. And we need to begin to make that case. And we need to begin telling our story in public life. Now, that's a collective thing. What, what do you do in the context of your own business? My guess is that, Christian, that businesses who hire and reflect the cross-section of society have within their employees, within their customer base, the full range of, of people of, of religious beliefs. I think the first thing is creating an awareness an awareness that respects the imago dei, the image of God in everyone, which also sees them as spiritual beings. Even if, we don't, even if they're not Christian, they're spiritual beings. And so carrying out our business, dealing with our employees in a way that respects that dimension of their lives, being aware, celebrating that dimension, even if it's an exercise in a way we disagree with, I would argue is the first step. Secondly, I think there is an element of affirmation. Now, I'm an Orthodox Protestant, and I have profound differences with many people of different faiths. So much so that I would believe that when it comes to our eternal destinies, there are serious conversations to be had. But that does not prevent me from affirming their spiritual dimension and expression and using that as an opening to a conversation. So affirm, being aware of their spiritual dimension and affirming their exercise of their spiritual dimension, even in contexts where I disagree, as an opening to create the conversation. We need to engage. We need to get past the fact that our faith is personal and private and belongs at home and we don't talk about it in public. We need to learn to develop the vocabulary. We need to learn to develop the means of engagement that deals with people as whole people. And then, yes, I would argue in a workplace, in a pluralistic society, there is an element of accommodation. Treat minorities the way you wish you were treated if you were a minority. Provide space. Create the opportunity for the exercise of faith so that we normalize and recognize the fact that we are spiritual beings in all of our lives. And so I think there's a challenge. There's a challenge for us as a society. Will Canada in 2020 figure out what it means to respectfully live together in difference? We're going to come out with a poll next week, and there's a lot more questions than the ones I've shared with you here that are going to tell that particularly in the last federal election campaign, Canadians did not fare very well in this regard. It was a polarizing emphasize of difference and separation rather than the building of civil respect and unity. That's something we bear together as a society, and we're going to need to provide leadership for it. But then there's also a challenge for Christian business. Because our Christian business people, 
going to be the leaders in helping society see what this change looks like, both by their words and by their deeds. I thank you for your time and uh, look forward to you playing your part as well. Thanks for listening to this ELO podcast. You can subscribe to the Entrepreneurial Leaders monthly newsletter to stay informed of new ELO resources and upcoming events. You'll find the link in the show notes.